We're in Ecclesiastes 11, or 11 verses 9 and 10, and then uh, we'll just read the rest throughout the uh, sermon. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have provided us a a guide on this earth. Uh, We are led by your word, and yet, Lord, if only we would obey. So we pray for wisdom to know it, and we pray for courage to follow it. And we ask you, Lord, to uh, grant us those uh, this day. We thank you for this word, and we pray, Lord, that you would guide us and have us to apply it to our lives. In Christ's name we pray, and for his sake, amen. The title of the sermon is Remember, and it's the next word that I would have read had I read everything, uh, all of chapter. Remember, now Now, if I were to just ask anyone what the definition of the word remember is, if I were to ask any one of you, I'm guessing that you probably... Mostly of remember as memory, which is kind of included in it. And so uh, that would be incorrect in our text, given what the purpose of the word remember is in our text. And uh, yet I think it's what comes to mind. We just think of remember and we think automatically something in the past. There's something that is coming to our mind from the past. But how do we apply it today in this text? And let me just read the two sentences that I hadn't read yet. 12.1 Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw near where you say, I have no pleasure in them. And then again at verse 6, Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain. So this remember is an instruction. It's a command. Uh, And the way I think it might be helpful to think of it is think of a mom that's just about to send one of her children off to a, most likely a, uh, a family member's for a couple weeks, maybe for the summer even. And so that mom might be giving last-minute instructions to this child. Remember this. You can just imagine her shaking her finger in their face. Remember, do this, don't do this. That's the remember that we're talking about. We're remembering a directive. In other words, You can imagine sitting around a table with old friends that you've gone through something with long ago and say, oh, do you remember the time when this, or do you remember the time when that? That's not the remember we're talking about. We're remembering the time when we're remembering to. Remember to do this. Remember to do that. Remember to do that. So it's an instruction. It's an imperative. It's a command. So our lesson today is actually seven points. I have six points on the second page of the handout listed, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't add a seventh point. I displaced the existing sixth point, making the existing sixth point the seventh point. So I just wanted to make that clear. It's clear. It's clear as mud, right? <laughs> Don't worry. I'll tell you about it when we get there. So the seven points are, and the phrasing is probably like this, but a little different, God gives life. God judges life, God takes life, we are to enjoy life, we're to remember God, we're to fear and obey God, 
and we're to center our lives around God's. You can see that the first four had life in them, and the last three have God in them as well. The only one I left God out of was the fourth point, and we'll get to why I did that. So the first point, God gives life. Now, this point is in our text from 11.9 to 12.14 is what we'll cover as our text today. So there are uh, 16 verses. But twice, and I've read them, Solomon writes, remember your Creator. He first says, remember now your Creator, and then he says, remember your Creator. He could have said, remember God, remember the Lord. He chose not to. He chose to emphasize the creative role of God. And our introduction today was brilliant in terms of introducing God as the Creator, because what better way of really placing the creation of man than in the context of God's creation of our universe? So, we are talking about God the Creator. Solomon stated several times that God has given us our lives, and if you look at your notes, you'll see that it has also. Those are all references within Ecclesiastes concerning God having given us life. And yet, in the very first instance, for instance, in uh, 1.13, let me read it. And I set my heart to seek and search out my wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. And back when I preached on that long ago, I mentioned that that burdensome task is life. That's what Solomon referred to it as in chapter 1. And here we are, it's the 10th sermon from Ecclesiastes, and so you should all be experts, right? No, unfortunately, I'm not an expert either. But there are some things I want you to remember, and that's partly the purpose of this sermon. It's to recapitulate what Solomon most wanted to stress about Ecclesiastes and the main lessons that we should come away from it. And the first is that He gives us life, and it's not a burdensome task not to those that know God, but to those that do not know God, it can be very burdensome, and even to those that do know God, that don't regard Him with the regard that He deserves, it can be burdensome to them as well. But God gave us life, and He owns all life. He owns all matter in the universe. Uh, I think it's not stated better than in Job 41 when God is speaking to Job, and he says this in 41.11, everything under heaven is mine. Everything under heaven is mine. So we are not our own. We are God's property. God gave us life, and it is alone. Now, let's look at the second point here that we want to talk about, and that is that God judges life. This is stated very clearly in our text twice. First at 11.9, our very first reference, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. So we are to walk in the ways of our hearts and in the sight of our eyes, but we must recognize that we will be judged in accordance with that walk. Now, this God judges life seems odd in this verse, especially in verse 9, because some see as a conflict here. Rejoice, 
O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. So far, so good. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Uh, some see their, and then too, they see this throughout Ecclesiastes. They see just this kind of uh, negative aspect, outlook on life. That's not what is implied here at all. He says, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Heart is passion. In other words, live passionately. And the other is uh, your eyes. And that is, you see what you want, go for what you want. And yet, the last clause is to tell us that there are righteous ways of doing that, that will not bring God's wrath down upon you. Now, the wrath of God, of course, our being disobedient to Him is unwise, and yet it also is dangerous for our souls. And then you flip to the last verse, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So, God judges. So, that's, again, one of the main points. A main point is that God created us. You are not your own. You have been bought. And He will judge. He, he takes that role very seriously. The third point is that God takes life. And my references in your notes here, I have 12.7 and then a few others. It's not really proving that premise that God takes life. It's implied but it's not proven. And so, let me read that one to you from 12.7, and that is, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will turn, return to God who gave it. So, in other words, God gave us life. The Spirit that God gave us returns to God when we have no need for it anymore. And yet, that's not really explicitly stating that God took it. There are other references, and you can see them in your text, but they're mostly the same ones where God gives us life. And so, what I want to do is share with you other ones from Scripture. First, though, I want to give you one from Psalm 139, and it's in verse 16. In your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me. So, we know that God has plans for us, and those plans include an enumeration of our days. They're written in His book. You can't get away from it. You can't escape of it. You can't peek into it either. So, we are without knowledge of that. But God knows. God has plans, and those days are enumerated. So, even by that definition, you can see that He takes life by design. But yet, we also know that part of that design involves things that, from our perspective, appear to be what Solomon refers to as time and chance in Ecclesiastes. Jesus told the story in Luke 12 about the rich fool who wanted to build bigger barns, and he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build bigger and greater. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. So, God can withdraw life from any of us at any time He wants, and He does so. Herod in Acts 12 was not suppressing the praise that he was receiving when people were calling him a god because they'd been very fearful of him just recently, but they had worked out a peace compromise relative to the, uh, his wrath, and now they were praising him and sycophants praising him, calling him god, and yet he did not deny it. And Herod was a Jew. I, I, I don't know that we all always keep that in mind, but he was a Jew. He's there ruling under Roman authority, but yet as a Jew. Yet, 
An angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira had uh, formed a plan to sell this property, say they gave all the money to the apostles, but hold some back. And then they both die right before the apostles because the Holy Spirit had imparted to Peter what the truth was, and they just die right there as they say the words. The feet of your husband who, who went off and buried him are at the door, and then Sapphira dies. So see, God holds our life in His hands. He gave it to us. He takes it away by design. So we should honor Him for that, for that role, that incredibly important role that He has in our world and in our lives personally. The fourth point is that, and this is the one where I didn't say God, where we are to enjoy life. The reason I did not include enjoy life and have God in there in any way is that that really does point out the whole purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I wanted to emphasize that to you. When we say enjoy life, Ecclesiastes speaks to both types of people who are enjoying life, those that are enjoying life apart from God and those that are enjoying life with God, those that are enjoying life or attempting to enjoy it under the sun and those that are enjoying it under heaven. It's just black and white in Ecclesiastes that this is what it is, but it is so confusing when you just read the whole book from front to back, and especially when you read the commentaries on it, because they are just are all over the map in trying to explain away what Solomon is really saying. Uh, some very, very good conservative uh, Christians write that he's just being a nihilist, a pessimist. Uh, it's just sad that they uh, set Solomon's wisdom of the, in the book of Ecclesiastes aside so tritely. It's not that at all. God wants us to enjoy life. And let me read this first part again. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, therefore, Remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. So he says, therefore, in other words, because of this, you want to do this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what many feel Solomon was saying in Ecclesiastes, and it's actually just the opposite. Uh, eat, drink, and be merry, and if you die you go to hell if it wasn't lived out for God. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. If there is anything I want you to remember from this 10-week series, it's that, that God wants us to enjoy life. And we'll get a little bit of that now. We cannot live for enjoyment because if we live for enjoyment, we're not living for God. We're living for ourselves. But we cannot live without enjoyment because then we're ignoring God's gift and how He wants us to enjoy that gift. So see, we must live for God enjoying life. So we honor God by living for Him. We honor God by enjoying the gift He's given. We have God, we have the giver, we have the God as the giver of the gift, and then we have the gift that He's given. 
we are to enjoy both. And let me clarify, I don't think we always do. And, and let me give you a question, an answer why. For instance, we could all look back at the monks in the Middle Ages and say they were wrong. They thought that they needed to separate themselves from this world, focus so absolutely upon God, upon being with God, and apart from this material world, that's what they thought the purpose of life was. But that is to deny the reality of God's gift. It's to shun it. It's to essentially get the present from God and say, I don't want that. But see, as a good child, you're to honor those that give you gifts. Someone who loves you, who is going to give you a good gift, wants you to be pleased with it, wants you to be thankful for it. And yet those monks in the Middle Ages, they were not thankful for life. They were not thankful for all of the gifts that God had given to them to enjoy life. But sometimes on Facebook, now see, this is to bring it into the modern times, right? This is not in some book I read, some Puritan book I read. This is on Facebook. I will see people, there's this really good, uh, compelling thread going, and people posted a wonderful thing, and people are making wonderful comments about it, but then there's always that person that will have to point out the, oh, no, 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 you can't enjoy that more than God. You can't do this more than God. In other words, they just won't let it go. They, they feel that they have to rain on someone's parade in order to somehow share the gospel with these people in this, in this odd kind of, you know, uh, social way that we have now. And yet, all it really does is put a damper. They're trying to cause these people to feel guilty about the joy that they were expressing. I don't like that. I don't think they're doing what's wise. They're just, they might think they're sharing the gospel, but I don't see it as that. They're just raining on people's parade. They're trying to, they're being like that, that monk. They're saying, oh, no, 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 that, you don't want to go there. So, see, that's what I'm pointing out, is that, is that many of us are people like that, at least at times many of us know people like that at times, that just won't let it go, that have to draw God into everything and make you realize how pitiful what it is that you're bragging about, what it is that you're enjoying. Oh, that's rubbish. No, 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 it's not rubbish. God made the world. He declared it good. I know it's been corrupted, but there are still so many good and wonderful things that God salvages from it. If only we would pay attention. Yes, we're all walking around on a rubbish heap. Yes, we're all... But there are good and wonderful things we find in that rubbish heap. Let's not just consider it all rubbish because our world is corrupted. So, God wants us to enjoy life. He wanted Adam and Eve to enjoy life in the garden. He wants us to enjoy life on this earth now as it exists now. Pleasure and enjoyment are good things. But, and this is where the rub is, they are not objectives on earth. You are not to live for enjoyment, not to live for pleasure. That is where the unbelievers go wrong. That is where they've gone too far. That is where they've put the gift and obscured the giver because they don't care where the gift came from. This is the little bad child that runs up, grabs the gift, rips it open, loves it, runs off, plays with it. They don't even know who handed the gift, let alone give them thanks and appreciate it. 
This is what they're living for. They're living for that gift. They don't care that grandma or grandpa or their neighbor, Uncle Bob, gave it to them. They really don't care. So, we must not set pleasure and enjoyment as our goals on this earth. And I know people that have. I mean, I've had people tell me that, that that's what they live for. Most aren't so obvious, but yet some do. They are secondary. How do we achieve pleasure-filled lives and joy-filled lives then? If they're not goals, how do we benefit from them? How do we glorify God by indulging in enjoyment and pleasure? It's only as you're seeking Him. If they occur as a side effect of your service to Him, as doing what you're supposed to do for Him, then you will experience them without guilt. You don't have to feel guilty about that type of pleasure because that's God's gift to you. But when you shunt aside the giver and focus on the gift alone, then the guilt will rise. And I believe that's in part why Catholics are driven by guilt, because their whole worldview revolves around guilt. And they just can't feel comfortable indulging themselves in God's world because they really, in many ways, don't know how to do it. Their worldview doesn't allow for that. If it feels good, it must be bad. And yet, that's not what God wants you to think. So now, the fifth point. Remember God, especially when young. In our first text there that I've read a couple times, uh, verses 9 and 10 and now verse 11, uh, we hear the words either youth or young five times. It's in there. Young man, in your youth, days of your youth. So see... This is being written to the young. So, uh, if we'd had that vow uh, ceremony earlier with 10 or 11 of you up here, I was going to point you out, but I'll pass on that. This, though, is the sermon for you, so you know who you are. I won't point you out, but you know who you are. So, I want you to be aware that this sermon, from Solomon's pen, is oriented towards you and people like you, young people. Us older people... I think, can sometimes have a very biased view of the young. We're jealous of the young. You know, the young can do all these things that we can no longer do, and yet they're too stupid to benefit from it or to know it. <laughs> they don't know what they can do. With this, this, this youth that they have, they squander it, and so we, we would like to educate them, but it's almost like we don't want to. Let them, let them learn it on their own like I did, you know? And so I think we can... Be hard-hearted like that. We, we don't want what's best for the youth. Now, we might want, want what's best for our own kids, but yet we look around at the great uh, body of youth that we see, and we just don't want what's best for them. And so we just think that what's best is kind of what we deem as best for ourselves here 30 years later. I don't think so. God made the young. I remember reading one of... Uh, uh, James Harriet's novels, and it was about this calf that was out kicking. Well, first, the doc, the veterinarian, that whole book series is about a veterinarian, a Christian. And so he goes out, there's this little calf that, that uh, is sick, apparently. Well, what he found was that a few months earlier in the spring, when the calf was off playing and bouncing, now, what cows do you know that do that? They don't, right? Cows, they just plod along and eat grass. But the little calves, when you see them frolicking in the field, they're bouncing around and they're playing and chasing one another. 
one of them landed on an old rotted stake that had been in the field, and it was actually stuck through its body. And so this man, this veterinarian, found this, and no one had known about it, and he pulls out this big piece of wood with metal things stuck to it, and now the calf can heal. But see, no older cow would have been so stupid as to have this big thing stuck in them, right? Because no older cow is galloping around in the grass. But the little one was. And sometimes, now I understand in church, you know, we want our children to behave. But yet, when our children are like at home, and they're maybe in the yard, you know, that's the time to let them run around and gallop and, and wear off all that energy. I think most of us know that. Uh, if, our, if we as parents didn't even believe that on principle, we would do it in practice because we want our children worn out by the time we have to put them to bed at night. <laughs> So we're, we're just more pragmatic in that way. But I'm just saying that by principle, God expects that. He made youth. He understands youth. And so when you read this poem that I'm now going to read, I want you to think about it. Let's read this poem, and then I'm going to ask you two questions. Verses 1 through 7. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of music are brought low, also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way, when the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Okay, now without looking down at your paper. Who was this written to? Anybody tell me. Who was it written to? Anybody know? Anybody remember? Jody. It was written to the elderly. Who agrees? No one's going to move their hands. It wasn't written to the elderly. Thank you, Jody. You're a brave soul. But it was written to the youth. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. So see, we, I believe, and I'm with you, Jody, I mean, it's, it's like automatically you assume this is written to the elderly. It's, it's a story about their present existence, but it's not written to them. It's written to you. It's written to you. It's written to you. It's written to you young people because God wants you to live life with this knowledge that what you now enjoy, you will not enjoy all the time. You will come to this. And he just wants you to be aware of it. That's all. He's not trying to bring you down. He's not trying to put on that Facebook, oh, remember me, remember me. No, no, no. He wants you to just live your life with the knowledge that this is happening. What does that make you do then? When you know you're going to lose something, what will you do with that which you are going to lose? You'll treasure it. You'll use it more wisely. You'll appreciate it more. This whole thing is about appreciating life, enjoying life. But I admit, 
it's rather dark. The elderly read it, and yeah, I can identify. I can identify with this. I mean, eyes, you know. Uh, and then to uh, some of your specific uh, uh, metaphorical attributions might be different than mine. Uh, people differ on these quite a bit. But for instance, I put in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. Some people said legs, the keepers of the house. They're holding up the legs. Other people say arms. I think it's probably legs, but I don't know. You know, they're, they're, I, I'm not, I don't think you need to be precise. It's obvious what is being spoken of. I remember once, and I might have shared it once a long time ago, but Ben Franklin was asked how he was doing. And have you ever heard this response? He said, well, Ben Franklin is doing wonderfully, but Ben Franklin's house is in a rather poor state of repair. And then he went on to talk about how his body was failing him. But see, him, his mind, his spirit, he was still living strong, but his body was not. So, we are to live life, and we are to enjoy and, and, and uh, bless our youth and, and have them treasure their youth, enjoy their youth, take advantage of these things while they can. And I believe Jesus modeled for this for us. And for instance, in other words, he could work out the compromise or the, or the way of living out as a youth, uh, living for God as well. When he was 12 and he went, they went to Jerusalem and he got lost in the luggage and then it was a day before they realized it and they thought he was traveling with friends, you know, because you have to realize there were hundreds of thousands of people traveling to and from Jerusalem at this time. But so here he is a day later and Mary and Joseph can't find him. So they return back to the city and they find him sitting with the elders. Now, if we just basically shun our children, shunt them aside at church functions, maybe they're three, four, five years old. But if we're still doing that 10, 11, 12 years later, we've got a problem. They're not getting engaged. This church obviously isn't for them. It's just for us old people. So see, that is what Jesus, I think, was uh, taking advantage of. Oh, no, no, this is for me too. Sure, I might not be able to participate fully as an elder, but he could go there and talk with them when they weren't about their duties, where kids aren't allowed to go. So see, we want our children to enjoy the youth, and that's exactly what it says. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. What he's pointing out there is that as you're young, you're still learning right from wrong, your right hand from your left. I know. My kids still get that right and left hand wrong sometimes. I, I think everybody should go into the military to learn your left from your right. I think it's necessary. <laughs> Apparently, it just can't work otherwise. But so, you, yes, you learn all this stuff, but you set it aside. You're also teaching your children. You're banishing the foolishness from them. So now, this poem is written to the young and we want the young to benefit from it. We don't want them to ignore the, the concept of aging, nor do we want them to ignore the aged. And I think many of uh, your families have included your children in ministering to the aged in various forms, and that's wonderful. Because Proverbs says this, and Solomon wrote that too, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That works for us, and that works against us. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So we want our young people being trained up in living for God, not living for themselves. 
We want pleasure and enjoyment to come as a side effect of serving God as opposed to an end in itself. The sixth point is fear and obey God. And Ecclesiastes 12.13 here in the the wrap-up essentially says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and keep His commandments. Now, fear, this fear is what back in Ecclesiastes 5 verses 1 through 7 I referred to as revere. And so I think it is best to consider it uh, revere. And I wanted to uh, talk to you about 1 John chapter 4 verses, let me see, starting at verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. The fear that I'm speaking about in Ecclesiastes is not this same fear that John is referring to here. The fear that we're talking about is a reverence for God, to have God be the most important person in your world. So, perfect love casts out fear. The fear here would be better termed in Ecclesiastes, I believe, revere, and that's why I titled the sermon that. But now, let's read on into chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves Him who uh, begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So our obedience to God is, is our love for Him. To the degree that we disobey God is, in that instant, the degree to which we don't love God because perfect love would result in perfect obedience. So, therefore, we do not experience perfect love on this earth, and therefore we fear God. We have an unhealthy fear of God in part. And so, there's always this teeter-totter at work in our minds, in our spirits, attempting to make us want to justify our sin by saying we're good enough for God and God should tolerate this in me instead of just admitting our sin and allowing it to be put under the blood. In other words, you cannot serve God without sinning in this earth. It's after you sin. What do you do then? That's the question. That's what separates people, the people that are seeking to be obedient to God and the people that are rebelling against God. Because if after you sin, you are seeking out some rationalization for that sin, then you're going the wrong way. And like we said, it's not about perfection, it's about direction. So if when you sin, you immediately seek justification, you're not pointed at God. You're pointed away from God. You're trying to seek a new Savior other than Jesus because with Him, you need to be facing Him to have your sins be cast away from you towards Him, towards His cross. Jesus said when He was, I believe it was at the well, when the disciples had come back and they brought Him stuff, and He just had this interaction with this woman at the well, and they're like, hey, we're here with the food. And He said, my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. 
my food is to do the will of God. Is our food to do the will of God? Do we eat service to God, obedience to God as a daily sustenance? I believe that's where most modern Christians are weak. We love God. We love reading about God. We just don't feed on God. Now, let's look at the last thing we're supposed to remember. And this is not the one that I'd inserted, and so this is the one that you can see, make God central throughout your life, but then I referred to the fear and obedience. This emphasizes the next phrase after fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. So, like I said earlier, enjoyment and pleasure, they fall out of this. They fall out of our revering and serving the Lord. But I believe that God tolerates our faults so well that we forget we're here to serve Him. We forget that's our job. We're like a butler that should have been fired from his duties because he's just performing them so pitifully, but he's been around so long that the homeowner just tolerates it because they love him. And so, see, that's God loves us. And so, He loved us. He died for us. And yet, through the process of sanctification, we become more holy, but it is amazingly gradual. I know in my life, it's amazingly gradual. How can God tolerate me? I just don't know. But I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians, starting at uh, 6.18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And long ago I had mentioned that I, there was a pastor I just loved when I was a young Christian. And when he read this, he said, you were bought at a terrible price. And it's true. It's not in the text, but yet we all know that to be true. Now, like I said earlier, this is the last message on Ecclesiastes, and so what I want you to remember from all of this is mainly that we are to enjoy life. God means for that to be the case. Point four was enjoy life, but point five was remember God. Because to the degree that you do not go on to point five, your enjoyment of life fades into nothing, worse than nothing. It's as Solomon describes it throughout Ecclesiastes. It becomes vanity. It becomes emptiness. How many of these famous people have killed themselves or tried to kill themselves? They know. They know where a life of meaninglessness goes when they've got all that they want. They've achieved all that they intended to, and yet they're so young that they don't know how to spend the rest of their time on this earth. So what is Ecclesiastes all about? Solomon referred to the term vanity 38 times. Is Ecclesiastes about vanity? Yes. If you don't know God, 
Ecclesiastes is all about vanity. But yet, if you know God, it's really all about enjoyment. It's really funny. It's like a two-headed coin. It just depends on which side you're looking at. What is your perspective? If you are a believer and you're living like a believer, then you're living joyfully and you're remembering God. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, you young people that I isolated earlier, uh, God made you. God sent Jesus to this earth to be a redeemer, to redeem you from your lost estate. Center your lives upon God instead of upon your own passions and pleasures. The fulfillment of your earthly passions and pleasures have to go through God. If they don't go through God, if you're getting around Him some way or trying to get around Him some way, you will fail. You will pass into a life of vanity. Even as a believer, what you're spending your time on then will be considered vain, and you'll know it. You'll feel it. You'll feel the emptiness in your world. So, live for Him. Enjoy life with Him and for Him, not apart from Him. And especially in your youth, because that's where you need to be reminded that this world is not your home, but you are to remember Him daily. And that was pointed out earlier, because He remembers you. You can bet on it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Solomon, who lived a life at a point, even as a believer, he lived a life of emptiness and vanity to learn this and to prove this for us. And we pray, for Father, I ask you for uh, wisdom to instill in the folks here wisdom and a proper understanding of how to use and apply your words here. And I pray, Lord, that you would have us to live lives of meaning, that they, uh, all of our passions, all of our joys would be sought through you and not in any way to get around you. We ask you now, Father, to have your Holy Spirit enter into hearts, to convict people of sin, and draw them close to yourself. We give you thanks for this in all things. In Christ's name, amen.